I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Every fortnight, we bring you a mixture of features and discussions, exploring every aspect of gardening, growing your own fruit and vegetables, plant care, pest control, garden design and container ideas, plus expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden right now. I'm Jenny Bowden. Coming up in this edition... James Wong reveals how to get the most flavour for the least expenditure in your grow your own fruit and veg. All he wants to know about carnivorous plants, but we're afraid to ask. And as always, the latest news on RHS garden events across the UK. But first, let's find out what jobs gardeners can be tackling this month. Hello, my name's Lucy Tate and I'm garden manager here at RHS Garden Wisley. Another top tip for August is to keep an eye on the plants, on those woody perennials you put in last autumn. The hot weather that we have at this time of year will really stress out those plants and they may need extra watering, especially coniferous plants, so conifers, anything with evergreen leaves that are very late to show any drought deficiencies. So just go and check them at the base, make sure they're well watered and you've got a good mulch to cover up and ensure they don't get too dry so when I talk about a mulch what you want to do is clear your area of weeds um, around the base of your tree water at that point so that any mulch that you put on top which could be um, a nice bark chip or some homegrown compost that's well rotted gravel as well is a mulch and it'll just ensure that there's a layer that traps the moisture close to the plant's roots and prevents evaporation through wind and sun Hello there, my name is Mike Ferguson and I'm the team leader of Herbaceous Ornamental at RHS Garden Wisley. And one of the jobs that we will be doing here at the end of August is our annual hedge cutting regime. So this is hedges such as Evergreen Beach or Hornbeam. And what we would do, we would use a petrol or electric hedge cutter and we would go along and trim the hedges back so that they're kept in their bounds and so that they don't overgrow. In order to get a straight line on your hedge, one of the techniques you could use is a string line and a set of bamboo canes. So if you put a bamboo cane vertically into the ground and a string line to hold it taut, that way, as you look down the length of the hedge, you know that you're cutting the same into the same distance. Um, at Wisley, we do this by eye, and as long as you go tight into where, with your hedge cutter blade, you're just going to go tight in just so that there's enough resistance that you're pressing against it but obviously not pushing too much and then that should ensure that you're getting a pretty even cut for the whole length. My name's Matthew Pottage and I'm garden manager here at RHS Garden Wisley. 
Now we're in end of August and you can see we've got late summer colour starting to come around us. But what is coming around us all over the place in the country garden here are these lavenders around the fountain. And what they absolutely need now is a good old haircut. And people are often scared with lavenders. I think they either think, oh, you can't really cut them back. We're not really sure what to do. Or some people go in all guns blazing and hack them right back and then they kill them. And the thing with lavenders is they, they can't tolerate a good hard pruning to old wood. Basically, if you cut all the greenery off, chances are you're going to kill them. You need to keep some greenery on to keep them going. But these elongated flower spikes, we see these long stems, these can be taken back into the foliage. And you don't want lavenders to get big and woody. Chances are you want to keep them in shape and keep them quite compact. So take this flower spike right back into the foliage and almost go to, say, two pairs of leaves to the point where you're not going to completely cut all the greenery off that but you're not going to leave a huge section of greenery on. So we're basically taking off the flower spike and the stem it comes on, and we're going to take off a few of these leaves at the top here. And what I'm basically doing is taking this back as far as I can without removing the greenery completely. So I'm not going to make it bald. And I'm going to... You can either do this with secateurs, so you can get those exact points. If you've got a small plant, secateurs are fine. If you've got a big drift of them like we've got here... I'm going to go in with the shears and I'm going to decide at what point is a good height and I'm going to shear these over. Brush them over with your hand afterwards to remove any excess debris or rubbish and these will then sit here. They'll start more actively into growth next year but it will make them less likely to be damaged by the snow, by being pulled apart and it'll just keep a healthier plant in trim for longer. You can find more tips and advice and video guides to seasonal tasks on the gardening pages of the RHS website. That's rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. I'm Jenny Bowden and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Now, a visit to the kitchen garden. As the popularity of growing your own fruit and vegetables continues to increase in the UK, many people taking up Grow Your Own are looking for ways to get maximum taste for minimum expenditure of their time and their money. Q-trained botanist and horticulturist James Wong is passionate about experimenting with growing and eating unusual, exotic and most of all delicious fruit and veg in his London garden. We asked him for some ways gardeners can get more bang for their buck in the kitchen garden. So my key tips for beginners are to remember that effectively flavour chemicals are produced in plants in response to stress, almost always. So the more stress a plant is under, the better its flavour will generally be. And flavour chemicals are a really good indication of nutrition as well. So very often, the more flavour the plants have, the better nutritional content they will have. The key is to balance that stress so they have enough stress to produce great flavour, but at the same time are not going to pop their clogs. Pretty much everything you do to stress them out will reduce your yield but you will still get that great flavor and I think that's the number one reason you know any amount of research will always show that people's number one motivation for growing their own is this unbiable flavor so that is low watering low fertilizer huge amounts of sunshine and that's pretty much it one of the easiest and best value crops for me has to be something like wine grapes people will constantly tell you that yes you can grow grapes in the UK dessert grapes and they really do work Well, there's a reason why the UK has some fantastic 
internationally award-winning vineyards but doesn't actually produce table grapes in any great quantity. You can't buy those in any supermarket. It's because wine grapes are significantly easier to grow than table grapes. Wine grapes also, also contain more antioxidants and significantly higher sugar and more flavor compounds than most table grapes. And you can't buy them in supermarkets because their short shelf life is so delicate and so restricted that you will never see them available to buy. Whereas in the farmer's markets of California and Sydney, you'll see everything from Chardonnay to Pinot Noir. And seriously, just for snob food value alone, which is more exciting? Some kind of boring, crispy, taste like they're frozen flame ones from a supermarket or have some Chardonnay, darling. Um, seriously, they're like the easiest crop to grow, so much better tasting, everyone should be growing them. Tomatoes have to be one of the crops that's had the most amount of research in recent years to figure out how to best improve their flavor. And there are all sorts of techniques. Primarily, it's by reducing fertilizer and reducing watering. And there are lots of techniques that are able to do that. Reducing fertilizer, particularly high nitrogen fertilizers and water content, basically, creates a stronger flavored tomato by reducing the amount of water in them. There's an, another technique which is uh, a British technique which is strangely only used in Japan that most Brits haven't heard of. It's a bit like the bullet train invented in the 1960s uh, right here in the UK never took off for whatever reason and went over to Japan and now they've got a fantastic rail network and it took me two hours to get here from central London today. Okay so it's the equivalent developed right here in the 60s it's called one trust training what you do is you pinch out the second cluster of flowers that's produced by a tomato and stop them growing. You remove all the side shoots. You have a single tomato plant that only has one truss of fruit. Tomato plants are a little bit like blokes. Not so great at multitasking. We're really good when we can focus on one thing and do nothing else. And if you're trying to go four or five trusses, tomato plants are kicking out more leaves, more shoots, more, more side shoots, new flowers, trying to ripen multiple branches, we just can't deal with it. If we have one thing, we're really great at that. That technique has been demonstrated to give you bigger fruit, less labor, more antioxidants, and more sugar. And it sounds like a bit of a shame having a single tomato plant that only produces one fruit. The great benefit is you can pack those plants in so much closer together. You can pack in loads more plants that way. They also self-support when there's short plants that are packed in together. You don't have to do the whole cane bamboo business. Trust me, if you have the four trusses, my garden at the end of the summer looks like some kind of Hong Kong skyscraper covered in like a scaffold of bamboo. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Less work, better results, why not? Another trick which is very, very rarely talked about, but really widely used by commercial growers, particularly those interested in getting better flavors from their crops, is watering your tomatoes, and I'm not making this up, with salt water. You need to make up a 2% to a 5% salt solution, which is roughly five tablespoons of sea salt in your average three liter watering can, and you water this over the surface of your soil of tomatoes. Okay, what will happen to your plants is they will start to look a little bit ragged around the edges. They will start to look stressed out, which is what you want. They will produce less fruit and smaller fruit, but that fruit will be sweeter, better flavored, better colored, and have higher antioxidants. It's used widely around the world, just no one tells home gardeners this. And the funny thing is, at that level of concentration, giving the average UK rainfall, the salt will not build up with the soil over time. Effectively, all it does is it stops the plant absorbing huge amounts of water from the soil, watering down your crop.
If you'd like to expand your range of growing your own and really try out some, some fantastic experiments, one of the things I would always go for is persimmons. They're a mango that you can grow in the UK. Everyone thinks that persimmons are a tropical fruit, probably because they're in the tropical fruit section of most supermarkets. However, they're perfectly hardy and in wide amounts of trials, and depending on the variety, are hardy down to at least minus 25 degrees Celsius. You will often see gardening books say you can grow them in the UK because they're hardy, but we don't have a long enough summer to ripen the fruit? That is, according to me, in my experience, a myth. Because persimmons are never harvested when they're ripe. They harvested like pears, unripe, and ripened off the tree. So it doesn't matter that they don't have a long enough summer. In fact, even in South Africa and Spain and China and Australia, where they're commercially harvested, they're never ripened on the tree. They're always ripened off. Beautiful plant, uh, butter yellow to... to vibrant reds and orange foliage right in the autumn. Beautiful fruit that keep a long time on the plant. Delicious flavor and one of the easiest plants to grow. The only caveat is they take a while to get into fruit. Look, you're talking about five to seven years, but who'd want an apple when you can grow a persimmon? If you're interested in more exotic vegetables, I've got a fruit, or a nut rather, that I'm gonna treat like a vegetable. So you'll very often hear people recommend growing almonds in the UK. And you can grow them, they're tricky to grow. I don't believe we generally get a long enough summer to produce ripe almonds. And very frankly, almonds are relatively cheap and widely available in the supermarkets. So what on earth is the benefit? Well, it's just by picking them green green almonds, which are essentially just unripe almonds, uh, that are picked at about the size of a fully formed almond, but much earlier in the year, we're talking May, are a spring delicacy throughout the whole of the Middle East and the Mediterranean. They're available in only a few select shops, places like Harrods and Selfridges in central London, for a very short period of time, worth an incredible fortune. They're sliced and added to salads and salsas. Uh, they're used with roast chicken, for example, and they have a bright, fresh, green, crisp, vegetable-like texture, slightly gelatinous, kind of halfway between Monge 2 and maybe Bramley apples, but with a slightly gelatinous texture. And the best thing about them is they're the easiest plant to grow, beautiful flowers in the spring, and you don't have to ripen them. So it doesn't matter that our summers are not long enough. I grow almonds grafted onto dwarf rootstocks because I only have a relatively small amount of space and I grow them in a pot. And the reason is I can take them under shelter earlier in the spring during the late winter to prevent them from getting peach leaf curl, which is a disease that very many of them get, particularly if exposed to rain. However, keeping them in a dry condition, like a porch or a greenhouse, or just in my situation underneath the eaves of a house, really prevents them from getting that. Other than that, low maintenance, beautiful looking spring crop, delicious edible fruit later on in the year, which no one else will get hold of, and nothing looks fancier on a plate than those sliced in half with some roast chicken. James's new RHS book on growing your own for taste will be published in the spring. Find the latest RHS books and more at rhsshop.co.uk. You can also find more information and advice on all aspects of growing your own produce on our website, rhs.org.uk forward slash GYO. Or visit iTunes to download the free Grow Your Own app designed to help you choose and grow fruit and vegetables, however much space or time you have. RHS .org.uk forward slash iPhone From plants that people can eat to plants that eat people well, almost 
Carnivorous plants can be unusual, popular and fascinating additions to a garden lover's home and help keep down numbers of irritating flies and, with the right care, they can thrive both indoors and out. We spoke to expert nurseryman Nigel Hewitt-Cooper at the RHS Flower Show Birmingham about the attraction of these exotic favourites and tips for their upkeep. Carnivorous plants are fantastic because of what they do, because they eat animals. Completely the opposite of what we perceive a plant should be doing. Um, They're quite a big group. There's well over a thousand species found worldwide. We've got about ten or so species in this country. Um, Here I've got some of the more commonly grown varieties, some that are easy to grow, some that may be a little bit more challenging. Um, For a lot of these plants, uh, there are two or three golden rules and anybody could grow them at home or in the garden. Starting with these amazing Saracenias. These are North American pitcher plants found in the southeastern states and then uh, one species extends right up through Canada as far as the Arctic Circle. Typically they produce these tall tubular leaves uh, and they're a rhizome like an iris. They produce a stem that grows horizontally along the soil surface and will branch gradually so the plants um, divide and produce a clump, a decent sized clump over time at that. They're deciduous plants. They die back in the autumn. Now that's where people go wrong with them. And the biggest mistake they make is they assume that they're tropical, which of course they're not. They're temperate and they're North American. So hot summers, cold winters. And that's the key. In the autumn, like a lot of temperate plants, these guys die back. So when the leaves die off in the autumn, all you need to do is cut them off. Don't panic. The next thing to do is stand them outside because they're, they're cold tolerant. They'll take minus 10 to minus 15 Celsius over the winter months. Um, consequently you can actually grow them outdoors you can't just plant them out in garden soil they need to be kept contained but you can grow them on sunny patios and also as pond marginals they're ideal in the margins of a pond you know in the shallows around the edge certainly a different form and structure to, to the standard standard pond plants you see in the spring they'll start their growth season they'll produce most amazing flowers like upturned lanterns which have five petals that hang out of them the, the colours generally, uh, for a species, they're, they're either yellow or red. The hybrids can be pinks, oranges, or brick red. Really beautiful range of colour. Um, once they finish flowering, these amazing leaves are produced again. The leaves themselves are tall, tubular affairs. They have a lid on the top, a, a common misconception. People assume when they catch something, the lid's closed. They don't. The lids are simply to prevent the tube filling with rainwater. And they cover the mouth perfectly if you look down on them from above. And in fact, they're channeled, they're they're, they're engineered in such a way that any rain that falls on the top is channeled down the back, away from the mouth. So it's actually a device that prevents the tube filling with rainwater. They release a nectar. Um, Another common question is, do they smell? Well, the answer is yes, but they smell very pleasant. They produce a sweet honey smell, really quite heady. Um, The nectar's produced on the lid. There's ultraviolet patterning, like a flower, so they're attractive to insects. The nectar is also produced at its strongest in the throat area. Now, the throat area at the top of the tube is covered in sort of a wax surface that insects can't grip onto. They drink the nectar, which incidentally contains a narcotic, so they lo- uh, gradually lose, the, uh, lose their uh, quick reactions, lose their footing on the wax surface, and down they go. The plant then produces enzymes inside the tube to break them down. They digest what they can, store the nutrients in the rhizome, and that fuels next year's growth. The famous Venus flytrap, everybody's heard of these, and for most people, they're really the only representative of the carnivorous plants. Um, it's a, a native to North America, so again, there's the clue to growing it, like the Saracenia pitcher plants. They're t- a temperate plant. Um, so during the summer, same conditions, full sun, stand them in a dish of rainwater. It must be rainwater for all these plants. And in the winter, they must be cold. And surprisingly, the flytrap will actually tolerate about minus 10 in a cold greenhouse with a bit of protection. 
Uh, I know people that do grow them outside. I've had them outside for two or three years. And they've, they've done okay. Then you get a particularly savage winter and it will see them off. But just under cover in a cold greenhouse is perfect for them. Alternatively, a shed or garage window or porch, somewhere like that. We've all seen fly traps produce these amazing tooth traps. Um, on the inside of the traps, which are often, as this one is, coloured red, there are little tiny trigger hairs. And when an insect lands in the trap, again attracted by UV patterning and, and nectar, they touch one of the triggers and nothing happens. As it moves around, invariably it touches a second one and bang, it closes. And that's a safeguard against a bit of leaf or debris blowing through the trap and triggering it unnecessarily. And because it can recognise those two stimuli. It's the only plant in the world that can count, because it can count to two. Absolutely amazing plants. One important thing to remember with the flytraps is not to let them flower. If a plant is, is, is large and healthy, it's okay, but it will hold them back a bit. If a plant's small or if it's not in particularly good health, it can be enough to kill it. So it's always best to just pinch the flowers off as they, as they appear. Poking the flytraps is a definite no-no. Each of the leaves will work about five times. Every time it closes and reopens, it's a growth process. So obviously it can only go so far and the leaf is spent. Each leaf will actually digest about three times and then it's, it's, it's life's over. But, of course, the more they eat, in theory, the bigger they get because the, the more they consume, the more leaves they produce. And they, they get bushier. They're not big plants. The biggest traps are only about an inch across. People seem to have this, uh, this mind's eye picture of them being huge things big enough to take a dog or something but of course they're fly traps they, they take small insects they're small plants anyway with the more commonly grown carnivorous plants the north american saracenia pitcher plants the, the, the commonly grown sundews the venus fly trap there are three golden rules full sun because they're, they're bog plants they're in very open boggy areas they must have rainwater and they must stand it because they're bog plants they have to be wet all the time and in the winter the more temperate ones like the saracenias and the venus fly trap must have that cold winter so appreciate the three golden rules and anybody can grow these. Nigel Hewitt-Cooper from Hewitt-Cooper Carnivorous Plants Somerset. The peak holiday season may be drawing to a close, but there's still plenty to see and do in our four RHS gardens. Here's some of the attractions and events coming up. There's still time to enjoy the Great Garden Quest, sponsored by Witten Investment Trust, at all four RHS gardens. On until the 31st of August, bring the family to take part in workshops, demonstrations, woodland walks and puppet performances and a whole lot more. Come to RHS Garden Wisley from the 2nd to the 7th of September and see the annual RHS Wisley Flower Show. Take this opportunity to talk to award-winning nurseries and plant experts, see dazzling displays and take in the late summer colour in the garden. Late August marks the start of the RHS Gardens Plant Fairs, with the Autumn Plant Fair at the RHS Garden Rosemore on the 31st of August. Choose from a wide range of plants from local nurseries and visit one of the free talks in the Plant Centre at 11.30 and 2.30. On Wednesday 10th of September we have a Gardener's Day Out with a difference. The Cotswold Wildlife Park near Oxford is delighted to be hosting 20 members of the Royal Horticultural Society's Herbaceous and Tender Ornamental Plant Committees. They will be keen to share their combined 600 years plus of gardening wisdom and passion for plants with visitors. There will also be a range of garden talks as well as plant demonstrations and displays. To celebrate the involvement of the RHS with this event, entry to the park is free for RHS members on Wednesday 10th of September. In addition to the extensive garden areas, there are over 250 species of animals on view. 
And, as always, full details of all these events and more are on the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens and click on what's on. So that's all for this edition. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden and all the RHS Gardening Podcast team, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.